Well, hello and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. I'm here with a very, very dear friend of mine today, Pastor Mark Bolthrop of Redeemer Reformed Church in Oklahoma City. Uh, many of you will know that I had the pleasure and privilege of heading up to Oklahoma City a few weeks ago before Christmas, end of 2023, to do a series of talks entitled uh, Family Life in the Real World. And I remarked at the start of those talks that I felt distinctly awkward uh, standing up there while Pastor Mark Walthrop was, so to speak, sitting down there listening, because I would very, very cheerfully sit and listen to Pastor Mark talk about anything at all. And so um, not quite a condition that I laid down, Mark, uh, of my coming to see, but one of the hopes that we didn't actually get round to during my time there, but we can do now with the wonders of modern technology. I wanted to sit down with you and just to hear your thoughts on uh, family life, on marriage, uh, and just for our congregation here at All Saints and the others who tune into us occasionally here, just to get to know you and your ministry and hear a bit about your family and so on. So, Mark, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. Well, thank you, Steve. I, it's always great to see you for any reason, but uh, glad to be here and, and your, your visit to the church. Uh, it, it made a lasting difference. Uh, uh, we, we did a, a Friday evening and a Saturday morning and then mm. uh, preaching on a Sunday morning. And uh, people are still talking about it. I still get questions. It, it really engaged. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to have, you know, uh, someone from somewhere else. They, hmm. <laughs> there's, a, there's a little more credibility there sometimes. Uh, but uh, it, it was just, it was excellent and, and, and it's highly appreciated. At the well, that's great. I'm, I'm really glad it was a pleasure to be there. And it's, it's interesting. I'm, I know you're joking about the credibility point, but it's, I, I sometimes wonder whether there isn't something behind that. And it's that um, sometimes the, the prescriptions... Uh, if that's the right word for them, for healthy marriages and healthy family lives, uh, they're, they're not actually that complicated to articulate. They're hard to do. Uh, and if you hear three or four different people saying the same blindingly obvious thing, eventually it's, it, you start to realize, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, I'm starting to see it now. You almost need to hear it in different words, right? It's, it, it's not that it's super complicated. It's that it can be difficult. It's a long-term task of being a great wife, husband, father, mother. Yeah, I, uh, I get uh, wary of uh, people with the secret key, the mm. secret knowledge, you know. Uh, of, right. Uh, come to my seminar and... Uh, all your marriage will be, problems will uh, be solved. You know, all, the, all the women will be strong, all the, uh, the, the men will be good looking, and all the children will be above average, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'd love to, let's just jump straight in and um, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, uh, your wife, Kristen, you've got three children. Just give us a, a quick sketch of your family life. We met uh, in, in church uh, 29 years ago. We've been married uh, 28 years and uh, had a, a, a wonderful marriage uh, all the way through. Uh, we both came from uh, families who were in church. So we heard a lot about family. I would say maybe not all of it was great, but it definitely uh, was something you needed to think about. It was something that was a priority in life. And then um, I, we have three children, two in college and one uh, senior in high school. Uh, uh, Maggie um, is at the University of Oklahoma. Levi is at Oklahoma State University. And Betsy is uh, coming along uh, to also go to college next year. So that's what our right. family looks like. We've lived in a few places uh, for 
churches. Um, we've lived in Texas and Georgia and Florida, but we've been uh, back in Oklahoma where Krista and I grew up. Uh, we've been back in Oklahoma about 20 years and at, uh, at Redeemer about 50, a little over 15, near, nearly 16 years. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to, before we just jump into the, the stuff about marriage and family life, I, I did want to make a comment about music because um, you yourself are, I would say, pretty musical. Uh, your church, the Sunday I happened to be there, uh, there was a really quite wonderful array of uh, musicians. And, and you know, it will be wrong to think we go to church to hear the music, but, but the music is, was beautiful. And tell us a little bit about your own musical past and, your, and, and what you think that's done for you or to you as a pastor. I grew up in rural Oklahoma, and uh, my uh, parents uh, were not musicians. Um, but um, in, the, in a rural school, uh, I was uh, in band. I was a trumpet player. Uh, before that, um, I loved music at church. And uh, as a young boy, maybe uh, five, six years old, I remember with uh, great trepidation approaching the pianist, the church pianist, and saying, mm-hmm. you know, I would like to learn to play the piano. And she said, uh, well, let's get you some lessons. And so when I was in the third grade, eight years old, I started uh, taking piano lessons. And I just loved it, immediately uh, loved it. I, when we would go on family vacation and I couldn't play, I looked forward to getting home and playing. Right. I started playing the trumpet in the sixth grade and uh, I just loved music, especially music at church, and uh, went on to a major uh, in music for a bachelor degree in music. Um, I wouldn't actually recommend it, but uh, it gave me a great deal of, uh, of enjoyment. It taught me uh, an appreciation for beauty mm-hmm. uh, that I might not have gotten in another way. It's helped me appreciate uh, all, you know, books and uh, art and these, because you're necessarily around those things in music. Probably most of all, it taught me the discipline of going in by myself and working long hours while my friends were outside doing other things that I might rather have been doing uh, in a, I don't know, in a different world. And then emerging uh, and uh, presenting what you'd worked on. And that that has uh, been a part of preaching and teaching, too. Hmm. Um, it served me in the church, uh, in that, uh, I think we ought to have better music that ought to be the, the place of the best music, uh, hmm. in hmm. church. And, um, so the day you were there, uh, I think that was, uh, I think that was all Saints Sunday, even yeah. uh, that day. Yeah. And, uh, so uh, there's some big, big hymns that we do on all Saints Sunday for all the saints being, uh, being one. And, you know, you need some brass and organ with that. So that's a, it's something yeah. of a, it's something of a hobby in a way, yeah. or it's, it's, it's an enjoyment. It's not really my job, but I love working with our organist and, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. putting those things together. It's also served me in teaching the congregation new psalms and hymns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, so yeah. I'm, I'm very, very thankful for it. Although I would not maybe recommend that my children uh, do a college <laughs> degree in music. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Well, let's 
um, jump into this topic then of um, uh, family life in the real world. It was a title that we hit upon in the, the months before I actually headed up to Oklahoma. If, if I just, I'll sketch out the, the talks that I gave, just a very brief, as brief as I can kind of outline. And then I wonder if, I mean, Mark, if you want to uh, jump in and say, you know, were there any particular parts that you think it would be helpful just to, to talk about or to explore a bit more or anything that you thought, oh, yeah, that's something I've not heard or that the congregation found helpful? So I began with, again, fairly ordinary and, and familiar to many people, a biblical framework for family life. Um, I, another way of talking about it is a covenant theology of the place of family and God, God's purposes for the world. And it turns out that marriage is more than just if just is the right word a a picture of the relationship of the lord with his people though it is that hence all the stuff in the prophets and also of course ephesians 5 it is also marriage and therefore family is the is a primary domain within which the promises of god to the world are fulfilled as god shows grace to his his people and his people's children and so it's it's quite hard to overstate the significance of faithfulness in family life as uh what god is doing in us in order to bring about his purposes maybe that's the best way of putting it and so there, it was a kind of the first talk um and i should say all the talks are available if you wanted to listen to them they're available on the um the media section of our church website or saintskirk.com slash media and there's an outline there of each of them but that kind of theological picture was right there in the first talk second talk i uh, i talked about submission which is one of the um, buzzwords, I guess, that is heard in our circles about the relationship between husbands and wives and how that might be misunderstood and how, how we can orient ourselves rightly to it. Um, so that both men and women have a role in taking dominion in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 1. And, uh, and at the same time, God has ordered marriage so that there is an asymmetry there and husbands have responsibility for leadership in marriage of various kinds and and then we talked about uh the the various ways in which you can go wrong and of course it's once you think about it if husbands and wives have particular and distinct god-given character they're going to have particular and distinct god give uh well, particular and distinct temptations for those things um when they go wrong and genesis 3 is a kind of a portrait of everything that could possibly go wrong in marriage or much of it uh then the third talk we uh I wanted to spend some time in the book of Ruth because it seems to me that Ruth and Boaz present a wonderful picture of both the outworking of what I was talking about in the first session. Um, you are a faithful man and a faithful woman coming at the task of marriage with every natural disadvantage, <laughs> you know, a, a refugee woman uh, and an older man in a culture that is uh, God-hating to a, a terrible degree. And yet you see through their quiet faithfulness, you see a, a faithful uh, dynasty being formed. And three generations later, you have the birth of King David. And then finally, I, I, I took aim at a fad in modern uh, family life. This is one of the latest um, of the things that will probably make your eyes roll to think about it again, Mark, uh, of, of the, uh, the quick fixes for difficult children the the fad of so-called gentle parenting and so i segued from just describing that to 
trying to think more biblically about how we should um, reflect on and put into practice discipline of our kids. And so, um, yeah, that was the shape of the overall thing. And then uh, uh, also on the website, there's a sermon that I gave the next day. And actually, that sermon was connected with the theme of the talks in the, the sense, well, the title was Post-Millennial Spirituality, which some of our friends here at All Saints will have heard me talk about. But it reflects the, the conviction that our, our post-mill theology, the expectation that in the long term, for the long haul, Christ's kingdom will grow with ups and downs uh, for many, many generations till the earth is full of the glory, knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That, that theological conviction ought to shape our temperament because it's a long-term vision. And so we should be ready to dig in for the long haul. And so that was the, the sermon from Acts 1. And then we had a, a Q&A in which I certainly felt inspired <laughs> by some of the, the really good questions. And, and yeah, so some of that. So yeah, just for the benefit of our listeners, that was the shape roughly of what we were, um, what I talked about. And I'd, I'd love to hear, Mark, if there were particular things that you think your congregation was struck by, maybe we could dig into some of those. Yeah, I mentioned the sort of three things, then we can talk about them. The mm. first one was uh, in, in thinking about uh, family as constructed that we see in Scripture, being part of God's blessing to the world uh, was a, was was uh, an eye opener for a number of our people. Mm. Um, there's a lot of the discussion. We frankly. Uh, get a lot of people who grew up with a, a baptistic mindset. And then when they come and they begin to think, uh, learn to think covenantally, it's often applied to baptism and how old the children are when we baptize them, that sort of thing. Uh, but not in terms of thinking that the, that the family, as uh, the Lord has constructed it, is a gift to the world. It is, it is part of the way that he is redeeming the world. And so that's, that's gold uh, for a family mm -hmm. who's maybe hearing, who knows what they're hearing. There's so many different, you know, marriage things and family things and, and what it should be. But very few people are saying, uh, you doing this this way is God's gift to the world. And he, Christ is taking dominion mm -hmm. via your family. And somebody told me uh, that they were, uh, there had an argument, uh, a husband and wife had an argument. Uh, and uh, somebody said, uh, you know, are, are we acting uh, as royal people who are uh, part of uh, the Christ taking dominion over the world? And there's like, we felt so stupid about our, our argument. It's like, what, we're so petty. Like there's these grand things that are going on. That was a big one. Right. Um, a, a second one uh, was uh, a, a lot of mention, and it's connected, of course, uh, about the gentle parenting. Um, we're dealing with some generational uh, values uh, that go along maybe with uh, younger parents there. And, um, and we, you know, you see that, that, the ebb and flow from generation to generation about how uh, we're going to train children and, and those sorts of things. And what is loving? 
Um, and um, uh, we, we've got a lot of people who believe that loving is gentle. Uh, uh, and, and, and by gentle, we mean sometimes uh, kind of wild. Um, decorum and orderliness being mm-hmm. thought of as uh, being thought of as negative right, um, right. and uh, free free range uh, being sort of positive. But then when you, the, the, the way you brought it out, uh, Steve, was in terms of, first of all, just maturity and Christian maturity. Hmm. Um, Jesus himself grew in maturity. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And uh, we all know that most Christians know that about their lives. As they look, but some of the most uh, greatest growth and, and and things that I appreciate were actually when I came through hard times. Well, to what end? Well, the crown of life. That's what. That's what mature. That's what steadfastness leads us to. And so then, uh, training our children and re- just the ways we relate with our children in those ways to help them mature. And it's often through suffering. That is the way most of us mature and that leading to the crown of life and thus a family that is a blessing to the world. That was, I like to uh, use the phrase that was worth the price of admission right there. (laughs) Even if there was nothing else, that was it. And then the third thing, and I will say that this has probably gotten more discussion, more continued discussion among Hmm. us is from your sermon on post-millennial spirituality, it was, uh, it was like as if a, a, an enormous light bulb, like those light bulbs that, you know, that they shine up into the sky, you know, and move around. But it was that big of a light bulb to think, uh, wait, my everyday attitude actually is completely opposed to the positivity of my eschatological outlook which right. is that Christ is taking dominion and the world is already a far, far better place than it was a hundred years ago or 500 years ago or a thousand years ago because of the influence of Christ and his kingdom mm. in the world. And then I'm just griping and complaining about mm. every little thing. What is the matter with me? Right. I repent. So that was, uh, that was, that has really gotten traction among our congregation. Well, look, I, I really appreciate that. And it's, I do want to say the congregation was really uh, delightfully engaged and the Q&A particularly revealed that. Maybe we pick up on that third point um, before jumping back to the first couple. Um, I've been reflecting on this on and off for years. It was a friend of mine who I've mentioned in many contexts before, David Field, from whom I first heard the phrase post-mill spirituality. And it just it just captured in my mind something along the lines of of what you're suggesting the congregation experience it was like a light bulb flicked on it was i hadn't realized how much i was neglecting the um the personal and temperamental correlate of my theology and so i guess what i'd done was i'd gone from being a sort of default amillennial british calvinist evangelical to being presuppositional, sort of one form or other of theonomic and post-mill, and extremely angry and frustrated with the, the, <laughs> the carnage. And the, 
and, and it's not that the anger leaked out all the time, but when I thought about, let's say, contemporary politics, it used to frustrate me immensely. And I think with, with some reason. And it, it's not that that attitude can't be understood. But most of our misplaced or misguided attitudes can be understood. They, they can be accounted for. And in my mind, it was this realization that um, maybe this one theological connection worth probing is that the importance of multi-generational patience. So if, if Christ is going to take multiple generations to accomplish his purposes, I need to deal with that emotionally. And it's quite hard to do in a context where we are used to quick fixes or we're used to having some kind of influence and we're sold this picture of being able to influence the world all the time. And especially in an election year, I was remarking on this last Sunday, uh, it will be extremely easy for us to have biblical aspirations, but worldly demeanor. Um, and of course, what then happens is that anything that is going to take a long time to produce fruit, like being a great parent, just doesn't have the emotional traction. And so if we can reorient ourselves, if we can think I'm playing a, not a game, but if it were a game, it's a, it's a thousand year game. And my contribution to it will be measured by the, if I'm married with children, by the faithfulness of my great grandchildren. That at least begins to start helping us to think differently, doesn't it? About the, the daily practicalities of life. It does your mention of uh, generations and number of generations uh, that also has been mentioned uh, a number of times. It gave a an outlook uh, throughout history uh, that I, you just don't hear that very many places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad that was uh, that was helpful. I, I, and I, as I said, I've I've remarked on that here. I think to the extent that everything's connected to everything else, our the way that we think about. Uh, our civil government and the election process in the coming months is going to reflect something of our um, our spirituality. It, it will tell the world and it will reflect to each other uh, what we think is really important. And, and we all know, if you asked us what matters most, uh, the way that you raise your son and daughter or the particular flavor of... Um, uh, political expediency that finds itself in the White House in November. Well, what matters most in God's purposes? We all know the answer. And it's, a, it's about conforming our daily actions to that reality. So, Absolutely. Um, do you want to talk about gentle parenting? Sure. So, so tell us a little bit. I mean, I, I use the phrase taken from some marketing and PR oriented Christian discipleship stuff and actually non secular, mostly non-Christian um, parenting resources somehow found their way into the Christian world. Tell me to tell us where you've encountered this or something like it and, and what it, what it looks like 
on the ground? I think sometimes, uh, at least in my experience, uh, when you have people that are looking for what might be considered by some an alternative education, a home or or uh, a private school situation, it, that's not alternative in our circles, but it is alternative in the broader culture. Hmm. Um, and and that's in, that is influencing us. That's influencing our people um, uh, that... Um, it's okay. We're not going to have kids sit in a classroom, um, for seven hours a day. They can really do everything they need to do in two hours. And, uh, that the real learning happens playing outside in, uh, in the dirt or something like that. And, uh, I grew up in the country and I appreciate my years in the dirt and in the woods. Uh, but it sometimes gets translated then into just let them go, just let them mm. run, let them do their thing. They'll be okay. Uh, and, and that is love again, that is loving. That is the loving way. Uh, let the kids be kids. I understand that. And there is certainly, uh, uh people that are, uh, you know, ch ch children are to be uh, seen and never heard, you know, sort of thing like that. Uh, that that's a, there's a problem and you, you may, you may want to, to come against that. But uh, we, we, we have seen uh, that when we do uh, discipline our children and we expect them to show respect uh, by their behavior to others, uh, maybe uh, older members uh, of the congregation um, whose uh, mobility is not the same. They don't need uh, children running by them at breakneck speeds in the mm -hmm. parking lot or something like that. For example. Let's, uh, let's, <laughs> let's curb uh, some of this behavior. But what also goes with that is that we do not expect the children to be seen and not heard. We expect the children to be talked to by adults in real conversation. Mm, mm, mm. So there is a good place for kids. When I ask my own kids uh, coming home from church, I'll say, uh, who, who, who do you really like or who do you feel close to or something like that at church? Mm, mm. And they'll name off, and it's usually a, a, a seemingly unrelated uh, disparate group of people they'll name out. And so I'll say, well, why, why? The answer is so simple. They talk to me. Hmm. They take a time in the hallway or at a, at a table at a meal or something to talk to the children. And, uh, so that's a different kind of parenting then, then, okay, we're just gonna let the kids run this way and that and, and so on. It's like, no, we're, we're going to show respect for others through our behavior, but we're also going to engage those children in conversation and things mm. they like to talk about, those sorts of things. And we find that that, that has to go together. It's not yeah. keep, them, keep them under control and quiet. Yeah, and it's out of not, my way. <laughs> let them run and scream. It's like, yes. let's work on our behavior and let's have conversations. Yeah, because it's fascinating, isn't it? In our liturgical life as a communion in the CREC, we have embraced uh, family-inclusive worship, let's say. that Everyone is worshiping together. And 
one way of framing this is to say, yes, and that is supposed to exemplify the whole of our lives. And therefore, let's have uh, age-integrated relationships as well. And the healthiness of, of course, the teenagers want to talk to other teenagers, but go and talk to somebody else as well sometimes. And and then for the adults to do the same, it's a real joy to me to, um, to have, I mean, being a pastor and having kids growing up, I guess, um, they get used to having adults around the place, but it's been a real blessing for us, Nicole and me as, as parents to see our kids blessed by interaction with older people as when they were younger. Um, and that's right. You, you want to have that kind of texture in relationships in the church. It's, it supports the task of parenting indirectly, doesn't it? Because you end up then with, it's not just, I'm the only adult they ever have to listen to. They learn to relate to other adults in a more dynamic and textured way. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm uh even a little bit surprised sometimes just at the level of the or the quality of the conversation mm, mm, mm. that a 13-year-old can have uh with a 65-year-old. Yes, yeah. And encouraging that is I, I, it it makes me want to to um yeah, so, something else another thought entered my head then. So <laughs> something else you said just going back a step or two to education um, seems to me worth probing a little bit more just before the, before I lose the thought completely. Um, the, the tendency to uh, make decisions about education in reaction to things being done badly. So mm. for example, the, the, the seven hours a day of being droned at by a bored and boring math teacher is nobody's idea of what education ought to be. And so the, te the, the temptation to swing to some other kind of extreme um, with, you used the phrase at one point, maybe in this conversation or a previous one, free-range parenting or free-range education. Um, I wonder if there's a couple of other things going on there. I, I, let, me, let me give you a couple of thoughts and tell me what you think. And the first is I think we've got to acknowledge that actually uh, Educating kids is really hard work. Like yes. teaching them to read, teaching them foreign languages, teaching them math and science is really difficult. Whereas placing in front of them a pile of books and encouraging them to read them and then encouraging them to run around in the garden and play in the dirt is not so difficult. It's not so demanding on the parents in some ways. And the, here's, the, here's the difficulty. They will learn an immense amount from those things. Now you, put, sure. you place the entire corpus of uh, Charlotte Bronte and uh, uh, all the great uh, writers of English novels, um, you, Pride and Prejudice and Wuthering Heights and Emma and all these things. I can think of uh, teenage girls not too far away from our home who, who would just happily have sat for hours and hours and hours um, re devouring that stuff and, and, and loved it. But part of me wants to say, hold on, um, math and science and the the harder subjects to teach, Latin and Greek and even Hebrew, are also the fruits of God's work in the world. That don't we want to encourage our children to take dominion there, so to speak, intellectually? 
And I wonder if those two factors go hand in hand. The first is just educating children is is hard. And so there is a temptation to stick with something that does some good rather than the best things, which would be harder and do more good. And then sure, there is just, yeah. there's just the neglect of the recognition of God's work in those other domains. We were, when, when, when Chris and I were younger and uh, children were first coming, we had all the answers about education and what we wanted to do, and, and uh, we knew what to do. It was not very long into that that mm. we started realizing, oh, wait, uh, our own self-discipline mm. is being played out in this educational setting, and, and we may not like what we see about ourselves in, in, in this, that the magic bullet is not, oh, we're not going to send you to the public school. Right. There's no magic bullet in homeschooling if there's not a good deal of personal discipline on the part of the parent. Hmm. Uh, to, it, it's much harder work uh, to to educate your children than to hand them off to someone else. Yes. yes. And uh, that was uh, strange. To me, it makes so much sense now, but it was actually, it was actually a realization for mm, us that mm. we had after getting into it. Yes, I think that's a story that probably could be told um, a number of different times in, in different parts of our particular reformed world. That um, the the priority of saving children from the negative effects of of secular education has become so significant that it's as though that's the only thing. And if you've just done that then then you're good and you're not it it's there's just a lot more to it than that um there is and uh the the children's just behavior the way they conduct themselves is a part of their education mm. and you're you're hamstringing your children terribly if they are not learning that self-discipline mm. of reading and writing of thinking these things through, of regimented math work, and all these things, it it is a education is discipline. Yes, yes. This it strikes me as one of the the benefits of some kind of collaboration. I I I guess this isn't the place to talk about the real granular details of what precise structures are helpful for education, but let's at least let's at least recognize that. If you're if you're educating entirely alone, you have no touchstones outside of your own immediate family circle to either say, look, you, I think maybe you're pushing them a little hard. You know, ten hours a day of Greek is probably a little over the top, or to encourage you to step up. And um, we found this in England actually. We 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 didn't want to follow the so-called natural national curriculum in England. There is a there is a kind of curriculum which all uh, government-funded schools have to follow. We didn't want to follow that, but we did keep an eye on it. And the reason we did was because we wanted to make sure that we were in in the pursuit of a Christ-centered education and a biblical education. We weren't just skipping out the hard stuff, uh, which for us, actually, I mean, I'm my background before becoming a pastor was in physics. Nicole's was in engineering. For us, the hard stuff would have been like history and um, 
English literature and, and so on, it would have been very much easier for us to major on the things where we felt at home. Um, and we found it helpful to have some kind of some kind of external touchstone to say, look, if they manage even in the government schools, they manage this, you know, we ought to be able to get somewhere near that level. Um, the discipline point prompts another question. Um, do, do you think parents sometimes get discouraged when they, you know, their first two-year-old tantrum episodes start becoming more regular and they, they try doing what they think they heard some pastor say sometime about some form of well-defined and strict discipline and it, it's not working, quote-unquote. Do you think that's a phenomenon that, that we might helpfully address? Sure. I, I, th I encourage uh, people will come to me you know, in the congregation with their children's, whatever's worrying them about their children. And of course, I can talk about that. Uh, but I try to connect them uh, with families who have children a little ahead uh, in that because there is uh, help. Uh, if your two-year-old hmm. is, is having this tantrum, there is help uh, there. That That's not the end of the story. That's just where you are in this chapter. And it's very helpful to not be isolated in those yeah. things. I see that as a pastoral job, uh, our pastoral responsibility hmm. to, to help that uh, be together and to realize um, that uh, a, a two-year-old's tantrum um, will, for most people, uh, become more moderated, but if if it's not dealt with, it will continue throughout their life. It's just not as obvious, mm. and no one wants that for their child. Right, right. So we're not going to give up on them. We're not going to say, well, you know, you just got to let the kids be kids, and sometimes they have tantrums. Those are opportunities. You have right. opportunities in there. You have opportunities to connect with other people in the church. Uh, and, uh, and get help, uh, for those things and actually see strangely enough, I mean, I wouldn't probably say to a mother who's just dealt with a two-year-old last hour, well, you know, that tantrum will be good for you and your children. Okay. So maybe it's not the time to hear it. The truth is if we can deal with those tantrums, when hearts are still tender before the concrete has set up, then we will have done not only uh, a, a lifetime of value, given a lifetime of value to the child, mm. but to the church and to the world. Yeah, yeah. And so we try to see those things. It is a natural part of human development to have tantrums. Yeah, yeah. I think that's part a, of maturity. Yeah. Is is the what the impetus that is mm. giving rise to that is to to work with it better? Yeah, yeah. I think that's such a helpful thing to introduce the idea of growing to maturity into that context. So, what's happening when a child grows up is that they're developing new physical and emotional and cognitive faculties, and any new faculty will be affected by sin. I mean, we're 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 the Calvinists, right? We understand total depravity in the sense of the extent of our lives which is which are negatively affected by sin is total and so of course we should expect our children when they start to speak to use their words unkindly from time to time sure. it's just normal and normal in the sense that sin is normal therefore not acceptable and not something we give into and so here what happens is our 
our doctrine of the victory of Christ in history, our eschatology, in other words, our post-millennialism, filters into our family life. We, um, we expect, just as we expect the, the um, uh, through many generations, God to be at work to bless the world through families, we expect within a generation, God to be at work to bless those families so that they will be a blessing to the world. So it won't take um, two days or maybe even not two weeks, but a couple of months, maybe. Uh, we've had times ourselves, and maybe you could tell, uh, uh, I'm sure you, you could tell stories as well, uh, of periods when it felt like there's no end to this, whatever it is. I don't want to embarrass my kids. I embarrassed them enough. Um, but it, there is an end to it uh, with diligent and prayerful discipleship of our kids. There's an end to the problem and then the beginning of the next one. And um, we the cycle continues. So. Well, someone uh, uh, said to me after uh, the week after you had given the comment, they said, you know, I got to thinking that uh, living such good lives among the pagans that mm. they glorify God in the day that he visits us is not just uh, kind of an individual, I don't know, sexual ethics or, or mm. financial ethics or something like that. That happens in the family. We Absolutely. would want, uh, sort of almost in an, in an Advent theme, we want to make straight the path of the Lord by the way we conduct our families. Mm. Uh, so very, uh, I, was, I was thrilled to, to yes, yes. be a part of that conversation. Yeah. Well, we, I, I've, I tell you, I'm encouraged here at, at All Saints. We, like you, we keep our kids in the worship service with us and... Uh, from time to time, there are squawks and so on, and and mostly parents are are pretty diligent. And if there's a squawk that goes on for more than a few seconds, or it's more than a certain decibel level, they'll, you know, the child will be escorted out. And I I just want to give a, a huge high five or a big hug to those um, mums and dads who are doing that because I want to say, look, if this is just part of the stage of life you're at, and God bless you for doing it, and um, you're you have this opportunity in the church community to to sit down with your son in a room of you know 50 yards away from the sanctuary wherever you can get to just to say listen son this is not acceptable um uh, there's you know administration of some appropriate discipline and then a hug and a prayer and then okay we're going to go back into worship and you're going to sit quietly that's not this is not how we behave here um and it's it's great it's it's hard. And what's, what's interesting is a congregation gets to a certain size and there will always be one or two children uh, who are going through a turbulent few weeks. And as a, so we want to be at the one and the same time uh, encouraging the parents to be diligent about that. And then I want to say uh, highly tolerant of the minor disruptions occasioned thereby you know if, if oh my goodness i have to get out of the way while mr smith takes little johnny out again fine pray for him as he squeezes past you you know because that that liturgical context then can become a microcosm of the lives of those families that's right that's right i, I had someone say to me um, uh in frustration about some of their child rearing said uh you know i get i feel so bad uh i i 
I, I used to listen to R.C. Sproul, and he would he would always say, "Right now counts forever." That was sort of the subline of the Table Talk magazine. Right now counts forever, and you know my child's doing this and whatever. I said, "Look, right now might count forever, but right now is not forever." Mm -hmm. Right now is an opportunity to make sure this isn't forever. Yeah, yeah. The um, final point, which was the first you mentioned, um, the family is part of God's blessing to the world. So what, we're what are we doing here? We're connecting uh, a practical theology of family life with covenant theology and eschatology and um, the Great Commission and the cultural mandate. It's... Uh, God's plan is that all the nations would see, that all the nations would hear. And the way that's done tracks back through those theological structures to how uh, Mrs. Smith and Mr. Smith uh, prayerfully are seeking to love one another and honor one another in marriage and to raise children who know and love the Lord. And do you want to say a word or two about that, or, or lest I wax lyrical for too long? <laughs> um, there is a, uh, I mentioned, uh, we do have a lot of people who are going through a theological shift or mm. which, which going, through, we're all going through theological shifts all of our lives. Uh, but uh, but uh, some of the bigger ones happen sometimes as young adults. And mm. so we we have uh, people like that, and so it's like, okay, how does the covenant apply to old world, new world? How does the covenant apply to uh, sacraments? That's, that, of course, is a big one, mm. especially baptism. How, but then, not really a hasn't been a lot of uh, thought uh, for some folks yet on well, how does covenant apply to the family? And uh, what are we? What are, what is happening in in in, in the family and the in the way we work with the children? And mm. what what does small faithfulness mean? Does small faithfulness matter? And that's where the that's where your wonderful uh, Ruth uh, imagery came in. It's like, well, uh, they were an unlikely couple, yes, uh, in an unlikely place at an unlikely time. And but then there was Obed, Jesse, and David, just like that. You know, yep, small yep. small faithfulness boom, boom, boom. Uh, with the family, even in the in the midst of a whole world who really is not there to help you uh, with covenantal family life. Mm. Uh, but you you can do this, and it's uh, it's it's. It's full of hope. I mean, it's truly full of hope what the Lord may do. You may get to see it in your life. You may not get to see it in your life. You may get to see some, but mm. undoubtedly you'll probably see some, but you won't see it all. But that gives you great hope, and that hope is uh, that pathway uh, to the hard things and to yes. the discipline yes. that it takes. Uh, because uh, I don't know anybody that would say, uh, that they didn't want an Obed, Jesse, David to to come out of their family. Everyone would want that, right? Well, how did that happen? It was unspectacular in many ways mm. in the book of Ruth, but it is quite spectacular now. Yeah. It makes me want to say a word or two about marriage specifically as distinct from parenting, because the thought strikes me that with the growth of our 
churches and the growth of our communion, uh, we are blessed with a whole range of different people coming to us from a whole range of different backgrounds. And as a pastor, I, I'm, I wouldn't say frequently, but it's not infrequent that I'll hear people saying, that without wanting to be disrespectful or ungrateful for their own parents and their own upbringing, they are starting to perceive um, things that their own mums and dads would acknowledge were lacking in their upbringing. You know, they're, they're parents who were well-meaning, perhaps, but immature in the faith, or perhaps not Christians, or perhaps struggled in various ways, ways with issues related to uh, substance abuse or any number of other things. And I guess I want to... An aspect of the lives of Ruth and Boaz that speaks to that situation is just just to consider where they came from and what God made them. I mean, Boaz, the text says, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Now, we don't know about his parents, but boy, do we know about his culture. He was from a, a depraved and wicked city. Uh, and it's, a, it's an astonishing surprise to see the positive impact he'd had on the men who worked for him. It, and so he is a picture of the change, or, or rather, at the very least, the the godliness and the faithfulness that God's spirit can produce in a man who certainly lacked some of the cultural and ecclesial advantages that we have. And but, uh, Ruth, the same, you know, she she comes from Moab. The, the, she'd been um, introduced, I guess, to the family of Naomi and Elimelech, but only as a, a young woman or an adult. How many years had she had worshipping idols in the land of Moab and God worked in her to turn her into the most remarkable picture of Christian faithfulness or, or believing faithfulness I suppose we should say in, in old, that Old Testament context and I, I guess I want to say that to that there's a there's a kind of Christian husband or wife who feels like I, I could never be that kind of godly wife, that kind of godly husband, because, and then they point to something in their past. And I want to say, hmm, really? <laughs> uh, I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I, I'm not buying that implied limit on the grace of God's spirit. And I've now been here in the US long enough to see it here. I'd certainly seen it during my time as a pastor in the UK, but I've been here now three and a bit years. And that's the kind of time scale. When you see a, a Christian man or Christian woman who is, she goes from this dawning self-realization towards a process of seeking disciplined growth in godliness. That's the kind of time scale that we see God working on. And I want, to, I want to encourage people to keep prayerfully striving for that kind of faithfulness. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm, uh, th this is not always a comfortable topic for everybody in mm. our circles sometimes, but I am uh, convinced uh, that uh, early childhood trauma is uh, something that we deal with a lot. And you know, you may know about like an ACE score, adverse childhood experiences score. Mm -hmm. And we get, uh, we get people at our church who 
I, we don't give we don't give a we don't give an ACE score test, but I'm I know it's quite high. I mean, they've been through a great deal mm. uh, in their lives. Uh, I did not. Uh, I I grew up in a in a in a pretty healthy situation, uh, but uh, those traumas do leave a mark on your life. And uh, the secular world has uh, recognized that and uh, really tries to offer some uh, therapy to it. I'm not knocking it, but I haven't seen that therapy make a huge difference. Hmm. But what I have seen are people who must have had pretty high A scores like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. (laughs) I have seen people uh, that in the context of marriage and church, Hmm. they are able to make sure that that those early childhood experiences and traumas, and sometimes it's, you know, it's generation to generation, do not get to have the last word in their life. Those experiences are actually brought to an end. Mm. They are multi-generational ways of relating, and they stop with Christian families who are pursuing doing the family in those simple ways that we, we mentioned at the beginning, quite simple by doing those with the support of the church, it's the greatest therapy uh, that I know. Yes. And when I look at it, just think of all the details about Ruth and Boaz, we don't know. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, that, that they, that they must have gone through. Um, and I see it, I see it, I've seen it now. I've been uh, ordained for uh, 23 years. Mm. Uh, I have seen it again and again. Uh, that there is real help and recovery uh, for the things that people have been through, but there's no instant fix. It's right. becoming part of the covenant community, living with a covenantal mindset uh, and perhaps a, a post-millennial spirituality uh, that heals yeah. and brings an end uh, to some pretty dreadful things that the fall has brought into, has brought to us. Pastor Mark Bothrock from Redeemer Church in Oklahoma City. Thank you very much indeed for being on the All Saints podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful. The Lord bless you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll see you next time. Bye for now.